Uh, good morning again. Uh, if you are new with us, uh, we are in the final week of a short sermon series uh, where we have been meditating on uh, six verses at the end of Acts 2. Uh, it's one of the first portraits we get of the early church, and we've been looking at it and asking ourselves, uh, what did early Christians devote themselves to? What were they dedicated to? And, and as we begin a new year together as a body, uh, these verses are a powerful reminder to us of what Christians have been prioritizing from day one. What, what, what have they been prioritizing from the very beginning? Uh, two weeks ago, we saw that they devoted themselves to God's Word, to the apostles' teaching. And then last week, we saw that they devoted themselves to each other. And this morning, we'll see that together, they devoted themselves to the worship of God. Big categories. We're going to obviously can't exhaust it, but we're going to explore that this morning. So if you have uh, your copy of the Scriptures in front of you, you can open up uh, one last time to Acts 2. One last time in the series. I'm sure we'll come back to this passage again in our life together as a church, but... Acts 2, and let me read for us again, Acts 2, starting in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Would you pray briefly with me one more time? Lord, we thank you for preserving this passage of Scripture, that we might learn from it. We pray that by your Spirit, you would cause these words to sink down deeply into our hearts, uh, that we would uh, be shaped by them, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted in our midst. Lord, we pray that you would nourish us again by your Word. Uh, Your Word is eternal life, And, and so we come now praying that you, by your word, would speak to us again uh, the good news and and remind us again of who we are in Christ. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Have you ever asked yourself the and then what series of questions? The and then what series of questions? So uh, when I was in high school, uh, it was really the first time I started grappling with uh, the Bible and, and what it teaches. And I remember being asked a line of questioning that stopped me in my tracks. And the line of questioning goes something like this. Uh, what, what are you going to do after high school? Oh, I'm going to go to college. And then what? Well, and then, then I'm going to get a, a good job. You know, I'm going to get a good paying, well-paying job. And then what? Oh, then uh, I'm going to get married. And then what? Go buy a nice house, start a family, and then, and I'm gonna, you know, raise my kids to be awesome, obviously, and then, and then what? And then I'm gonna help them get into good schools and help them get good jobs. Well, then what are you gonna do after that? Well, then I'm gonna retire and I'm gonna, you know, move somewhere warm and uh, do retired things. And and then what? Well, then I guess I'll die. And then what? And when you get to the end of that, if you could, you know, assuming that all of those things went the way that I thought they would go, or maybe go the way you think they would go, and if you could, on your deathbed, have someone come and ask you, now what was the point of all that? All the answers to those questions, and college, and job, and marriage, and children, and what was the, what was the point? Of all that, what would your answer be? I think there are three answers that generally come. 
You know, the cynic will say, well, there is no point. There is no point. But that's because that person is not being honest with themselves. No one really lives like there's no purpose, like there's no point in life. The apathetic person will say, uh, I don't know. I'm too busy hanging out with my friends, playing basketball, playing video games. That was, that was my answer. I don't know. I never thought about it. And the religious person might say something like, the point is to live a good life. The point is to love people or leave the world a better place than you found it. But of course, the question then is, what is a good life? How do you you define those things? How do you pursue those things? I'm curious to know how you would answer that question. How would you answer that question? What is the point of all this? What are we doing here? Not just here in this courtroom, this building, but what what are we doing here in our lives? As Christians, we believe that that all of history, that all of our lives and everything in the Bible is straining forward to one great goal. Do you know that? That all of history, everything is, is reaching forward to this one great goal. Do you know what that goal is? The glory of God. The glory of God. In other words... The point of my life, the point of your life as as God's creatures, is that we would look into the glory of God, love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and give Him the worship that is due His name forever and ever. That's the point of all of it. One commentary puts it this way. Worship constitutes the primary calling of humans. So maybe you're a person that's like, well, what am I called to in this life? Like, what is my, what, what is God's calling for me? Well, I don't know specifically, but I can tell you this, your calling is worship. You are called by God to be a worshiper. You are made by God to be a worshiper. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it like this, question one, what is the, the chief end of man? I'm sure many of you know this, you've heard this before. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Where is all this going? Let me show you what the Scriptures say about where all this is going. Revelation 5. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. This is a a portrait of the end of all things. What everything is straining forward to. Revelation 5. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne... And to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's the point. That's what everything is straining forwards to. The great end of all of history. The never-ending and ever-increasing joy-filled worship of God. And early Christians knew that the unbridled worship of God is not only the great anticipation and chief goal or the chief end of God's people in eternity, but it is the great goal of God's people now. This is our chief end, our chief goal right now as God's people, that right now in this life, our lives together ought to be marked by a joyful devotion to the worship of God, that we might join in the heavenly chorus and sing praise to God and, and, and speak praise to God and live lives of praise to God. 
that we might dwell on the manifold perfections of God until our heart says with the psalmist, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy at the living God. It is to have your eyes set on the breathtaking beauty of the Lord until your hearts and mouths and lives overflow with love and admiration and devotion to God. It is to adore His holiness. It is to stand in awe of His power. It is to delight in His mercy. It is to revere His justice, to cherish His wisdom, to treasure His love, to praise His patience, to prize His grace, to exalt His eternality, to magnify His righteousness, to esteem His authority, to honor His goodness, to rejoice in His faithfulness, to obey His commandments, to extol His purity, to relish His greatness, to glory in His compassion, to bless His name. Do you know that's why you were made? And when we have done that, as one pastor says, we have only touched the hem of his garment. We have only scratched the surface. We have only begun to explore the vast oceans of glory that are in the Godhead. And what we see here in this text is that the lives of early Christians centered on and were devoted to worship. Now, where do I see that? You have your Bible open. Look at verse 47. We find this phrase, praising God. I'm not going to go into all the, the linguistic elements here, but basically it, 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 it modifies or qualifies everything in those sentences. And so in the original sense, in the, in the original language, the sense is that praising God is the banner over all of that. That in an ongoing and continual sense, their lives were marked and characterized by a praising of God. In other words, worship is what colored everything that they did. Now, what we see in this text is, is that reality. Worship coloring everything in their lives. We see that, that reality uh, played out in three different spheres. Three different realms, three different places in life, if you will. And I want to show you those three different places here in this text. So are you tracking with me? They devoted their entire lives to worship, and that reality gets played out in like three different spheres. And I want to show you those. The first sphere is that they devoted their lives to worship corporately. That's the, that's the first sphere. Corporately, as they gathered together as the body of Christ. So you can put it this way. They devoted themselves to worship when they were all together. Most likely, you see that here in verse 46, by the way. Verse 46, it says, and day by day, attending the temple together. It's a corporate sphere. Most likely, the early Christians gathered daily in the temple courts to hear preaching and teaching, to sing and to say the prayers, and also, by the way, to participate in the sacrifices. We're in this little in-between period between uh, Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple, so it would have been common for uh, Christians in Jerusalem to go to the temple and participate in the sacrifices, the sacrifices, but with a veil removed, right? With new eyes, looking to those sacrifices and seeing what their significance what is and what it always pointed to. In Acts 3 and 5, we see again that they were gathered in Solomon's portico, the outer courts of the temple, where Peter is preaching the gospel. Uh, by Acts 20, the gospel has spread, churches have planted, and we find Christians in the habit of regularly gathering on the first day of the week, which the Apostle John refers to as the Lord's Day, since it was that day that Jesus victoriously rose from the dead. Right? There they are, gathering, regularly gathering together for worship, to worship the Lord. And now what I want you to see is that this really isn't some 
novel idea that the early Christians had to gather together to worship God corporately. No, God has always intended for his people to gather together and to worship him together as a people, as a congregation. In all of God's redemptive works throughout Scripture, he is always announcing his intention to form a people for himself, to redeem a people for his glory. When he forms Adam and Eve, he calls them to multiply and fill the earth with a multitude of image bearers who will reflect his glory. When he calls Abraham, right, the blessing that he extends is the promise of a people that are more numerous than the stars in the sky who will have Yahweh as their God. When God calls Moses, he says, I have seen the afflictions and heard the groans of my people. And he sends Moses to deliver the people. And after all the plagues in the Passover, when God finally delivered Israel safely through the Red Sea and slaughters the Egyptians behind them, we read that the people feared the Lord and that Moses and the people sang to the Lord. When God establishes David as king, he establishes him as a king over a nation, over a people, that they might worship the Lord, that they might be not devoted to idols, but devoted to Yahweh. When Peter comes to describe the church in his first epistle, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you, plural, that you all, that you, the congregation, the people, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And again, when we come to the great end of all things, when we come to the, the consummation of human history, what do we find? Do, do we find disassociated individuals worshiping God on their own in a, in, a, in a private little closet? No. We read in Revelation 7 of a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue before the Lord worshiping. It has always been God's intention and always will be God's intention that his people would gather together corporately to worship him, to give him praise. The scriptures know nothing. Listen to the words I'm about to say. The scriptures know nothing of the Lone Ranger Christian who sits at home with his Bible and his favorite Spotify playlist and YouTube preacher, and that's their experience of worship. Now listen, I'm, I'm not knocking listening to worship music on Spotify or listening to preaching online, but what I'm saying is God's intention and our need is that we would gather together and worship the Lord together. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I I have never known a professing Christian who has drifted away from regularly gathering with God's people, who is not deeply struggling in their faith or drifting away from the faith altogether. I've never met someone who drifted away from regularly gathering who was like really spiritually flourishing. Why is that? It's because God's intention is that his people gather together for worship and it is one of the primary means of God's grace through which we are strengthened and encouraged and preserved and equipped to live lives that glorify him, that we might rest again in Jesus, that we might be nourished again by the word of God and equipped to live lives that honor him. It's why the scriptures instruct us in Hebrews 10 saying, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That God's people gather together to worship him. It's what they do. The, the word church in the original language literally means the gathering. It means, it means the, the gathering. 
of God's people. And now listen, I want you to hear me say this. A gathering for worship in, in this kind of setter, setting, corporately, is not all that the church is. Right? We, we are a church Monday through Saturday. But it's not less than that. Our gathering for the explicit purpose of worshiping God is essential to what it means to be a church. You, you cannot be a church and not gather corporately together to worship God. You know, when I was in high school, I was in a garage band. They were very special days. And uh, if you think about a garage band, you know, we could not say that we were a, a band if we just sort of sat at home by ourselves practicing the same songs. And we couldn't even really say that we were a band, maybe closer, but we couldn't even really say that we were a band just because we got together in my basement and played music together. Because what bands do is they get together and they play shows, or they get together and they record an album. That's like inherent to what a band is. Or think of a baseball team, right? Just because you're wearing the same jersey does not make you a baseball team. At some point, the baseball team has to get together and play the game of baseball, or it's not a baseball team. You just have a bunch of people that are wearing the same jersey and like, you know, to have a catch. And so it is with the church. The church must at some point gather together to worship the Lord. At the very bottom of what makes us a church is that we are committed to gathering together as God's people to worship the Lord in anticipation of that day when we will take our place among the multitude that cannot be numbered in glory and give praise to the Lord. And brothers and sisters, I, I, I can't emphasize how important our gathering is. And, and I want you to hear, this is, not just, this is not just me trying to make my pitch to get people to come on Sunday morning or something. Hey, don't get me wrong, I want lots of people. You know, by God's grace, by the time we're done here, you know, at the courthouse and we're ready to go back, you know, all these seats will be filled and there will be people here singing praise to God. Like, I want that. I want people, uh, I want their, this room to be filled. I hope this room is, is, is bumping with people. But what I'm trying to show you is, is why the early Christians were devoted to the worship of God corporately. Because it's basic to what it even means to be a church. And because it's basic to the spiritual health of your soul. You see, why do we gather each week? Why should we devote ourselves to coming together to worship corporately because every Sunday when, when you walk in here and when I walk in here, what you need and what I need more than anything else it, it is for your eyes, for my eyes to be lifted up. I got my eyes on all kinds of stuff during the week. I got my eyes on myself, I got my eyes on my kids, I got my eyes on my circumstances. And what you need and what I need more than anything else when we come in Sunday mornings to have our eyes lifted up. You need to see again the glory and the majesty and the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You need to be shown again the grace of God that has been poured out to you in Jesus Christ who came into the world to rescue sinners, to rescue, do you remember the passage we read in Jeremiah 2? Those people that exchanged God, who traded in God, who hewed out cisterns for themselves, who, who, who sought their soul's good in things that were just muddy slop. You need to be reminded that Jesus Christ came into, world, into the world for those folks. He came into, into the world for those people to die in their place, to live the life of obedience, the life of glorifying God that you should have lived, and then to stand as your substitute at the cross 
to bear your punishment in full under the wrath of God so that through his resurrection, you could be brought to God. You could be reconciled to God. You could be set free to know him and worship him and and, and finally drink deeply of living waters. You need to be reminded each week of God's glory, of his goodness. That in seeing his love, resting in his kindness, that again your heart would be filled up to overflowing and that we would leave this building praising and magnifying his name. And, and so, you know, I, I've said to you, part of the reason that we do this sermon series is to just ask that question, why are we doing what we're doing? Why do we do what we do? Everything in our service, by God's grace, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, is aimed at taking your eyes and and lifting them up to heaven. Taking them off of yourselves, taking them off of your circumstances, taking them off of the things that the world would have us focus on, and setting your mind on things above, looking to Jesus Christ. That you would come in and see again Jesus, the the crucified and risen and ascended Savior who is at the right hand of the throne of God. So that in lifting your eyes, your hearts likewise might be filled up with worship to the Lord. That's that's what we want to be about on Sunday morning. That's what we want to be about as we gather together as a church. Not making a name for ourselves, but magnifying the name of God of the Lord. You know, we, we joke about this, but you know, no, no one comes to JCF Williamstown for the production value, right? You're, you're not coming here because of a cool light show or smoke or, or, or you know, great programs or something. We don't, we don't have like a ton of fancy things to offer. What, what we're here to do together, and listen, I'm not saying that lights is wrong or programs are wrong. What I'm saying is, why are we here? We're here so that together we might look up and see the Lord Jesus Christ together and worship him. And, and you know, this is, a, this, is a, this is a timely Sunday for this service because do you know what that's not dependent on? It doesn't matter whether, whether we're in the Pfeiffer Center. It doesn't matter whether we're outside on the side yard because there's some global pandemic. It doesn't matter whether we're in a courtroom. It doesn't matter whether we're sitting in someone's living room. As we gather together as God's people, what we gather together to do is see the Lord Jesus Christ again. Rest in Him again. Glorify Him. That's what we do. That's why we gather. So that, I know, that was the longest one. The first sphere is is corporate. And and listen, don't underestimate the importance of gathering corporately with God's people. Remember that for the bulk of church history, I want to commend strongly to you Listen to these words I'm saying. I want to commend strongly to you the private reading of Scripture. But do not forget, for the vast majority of church history, people did not have personal copies of the Bible. And the bulk of their discipleship came as they gathered together, heard the Word taught, meditated on the Scriptures together, sang in praise of God, prayed prayers together. That was the the way primarily in which they were discipled. Don't underestimate the importance of the corporate gathering in your marriage. The necessity of gathering together with God's people in cultivating a healthy relationship with your spouse or in parenting. Right? Are you stressing about how we, we need to disciple our children? Again, I'm commending to you strongly reading the scriptures with your children, praying with your children, catechizing your children. Do not underestimate the importance of bringing them to church on Sunday morning. Don't underestimate the importance of coming and gathering with God's people when you are in a season of suffering. You know, a lot of times when people are in a season of suffering or when they're in a season of just like, I feel like I'm a mess, their, their reflex is to stay away. 
Their reflex is, I'll come, I'll come when I'm ready. I'll come when I got my act together. And what I want to say is, it is precisely when you are in the depths. It is precisely when you are the biggest mess that you need to gather together with God's people and have your eyes set on the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, corporate. This is not going to be one of my shorter ones. <clears throat> I mean the sermon as a whole. Hopefully this will be a shorter point. Uh, the next sphere. They were devoted to worship corporately, but they were also devoted to private or, or individual worship. In other words, they were devoted to worship when they weren't together. Okay, so sphere one, they were devoted when they were together, when they were all together, and also what we see in this text is they, they were devoted to worship when they were not together. Look at verse 46 again. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. You, you can see the contrast there pretty clearly, right? They, they attended the temple together, right? That's corporate. And they broke bread in their homes. And they're probably gathering smaller versions. Groups of them are gathering together in their homes. But the contrast there is it's a more private individual uh, gathering. Uh, and, and what characterizes both is that they were praising God, right? That's the banner hanging over all this. They attend the temple together, praising God. They're breaking bread in their homes together, praising God. And now I know I'm not, I'm not telling you some new profound idea that you've never heard before, but what I want you to see is that for the early Christians, worship was not an activity or a, 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 a program or a service as much as it was a way of life. It, it was a way of, of, of living. And what's in view here is Christians gathering in the temple and in their homes. But more than that, what's plain from this text is that these brothers and sisters made no distinctions regarding when or where worship was appropriate. They made no distinctions about when or where worship was appropriate. In other words, there's, there's no location and no time in which it's not appropriate for God's people to worship the Lord. All of life was worship. That's why we read in Romans 12, right? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And that's the sense there. Presenting your bodies as a spiritual, uh, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice is this idea of presenting your whole life as a sacrifice of worship. Worship is not merely what happens on Sunday morning. It's not less than that, but it is more. Worship is what happens when a person has been graciously redeemed by the blood of Christ such that their whole life now orbits around desiring to, to honor the Lord wherever they are and in whatever they are doing. I came across this, this quote uh, that, that was helpful to me. In my preparation, A.W. Tozer, are you familiar with A.W. Tozer? Old, old uh, not super old, 20th century author. He says, if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him one day. See, a Christian is someone whose whole life has been turned over to the Lord in worship. And there's a unique experience of that on a Sunday morning, but their whole lives are to be lived as lives of worship. And, uh, you, you know, many religions have places of worship. So, for example, like one of the five pillars of Islam is the pilgrimage, the hajj, where you, where you go to Mecca. And it's a, a special place of worship. Many Eastern religions designate particular shrines and special places of worship. But for Christians, here's what I want you to see. For Christians, all places are places of worship. There's no place in the Christian's life where it's not appropriate for them to live lives of worship. The gathering of the church is a place of worship. Home is a place of worship. Riding in the car is a place of worship. At work is a place of worship. With family or friends, the dinner table, the gym, outside playing with your kids, going to the grocery store, in front of the TV or the computer screen. These are all places of worship wherein we are to live our lives in praise to God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink 
or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How can, how can Paul say that? What, do, what does he mean? Whether you eat or drink. In the most mundane things that you do, do all to the glory of God. There's lots of ways that we could talk about this, but, but one way to understand this is recognizing that at the heart of the gospel is not rules and regulations, but relationship. So, think about it this way. No matter where I am, no matter what I'm doing, I am Lindsay's husband. And that impacts the way I do things. It impacts the decisions I make. It impacts the conversations I have, the relationships I have. It impacts how I spend my money. And in Jesus Christ, everything you do, you do as God's children. You do as those who have been brought into relationship with God. Because of the gospel, we have God as our God. And that ought to impact the way we do everything. Our lives should be built on and controlled by this amazing reality that we have God as our heavenly Father and the object of our worship. I I wish I had more time to just unpack that reality in a bunch of different examples and and different uh, applications. You know, when 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 I'm at home, what does what does that reality mean? When I'm at home, when I'm when I'm at work, when I'm angry, when I'm afraid, when I'm with my family, when I'm with my children. That would be a good conversation to have if you do wind up having lunch with one another. That would be a good conversation to have. What does it look like to live a life of worship, meaning I have been brought into relationship with God, and that reality is a static, unchangeable reality in my life no matter where I am. So what does it look like to live a life of worship, to live as a child of God in this place, in that place, and wherever I am. Our text gives us one example of a life of worship specifically as it relates uh, to material blessings. So an example of what this kind of holistic life of worship, what that actually produces in people. You see there in our passage that uh, verse uh, 46, it says that they, uh, I'll read the whole thing, and day by day attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. The, the, I want you to focus in on those two words, glad and generous. They're like two, two sides of the same coin. See, what, what happens when your life is lived as a continual response to God's grace? What, what happens? It changes the way you look at things. It changes the way you look at goods. It changes the way you look at monies, you know, material resources. Look at how the early church is described here. They are glad and generous. When you have in all of life God as the object of your deepest affection, that means that everything good that you have in your life, you receive it as a gift. Right? You know that you are undeserving of the relationship you have with God and undeserving of the gifts that He gives you. But you know that because you are a child of God and you have God as the object of your worship, that He delights to give His children good gifts. And so when you get good gifts, you receive them with glad hearts. You enjoy them. In fact, you are actually set free to enjoy them. Do do you know... What happens when you don't have God as the object of your worship? You will have something else as the object of your worship. And that will squeeze out any enjoyment you can have in the gifts that God gives. Because that thing will never actually be able to deliver on its promises. If the the great desire and affection of your heart is security in money, you will never be able to enjoy it when you get a bonus from work. Because you're going to look to that bonus as the thing that will make you happy, and eventually it will disappoint you. Eventually it will crush you and it will leave you wanting. But if I have God as the object of my, of my affection, and I know He is the ultimate thing that my heart longs for, and I have Him, that when the bonus comes, I can take it for what it is. I can receive it as a gift and actually enjoy it without putting my hope in it. You see? And here's the flip side of the coin. Glad and generous hearts. 
You see, when you have God as the object of your affection, do you know what else you do with God's gifts? You hold on to them loosely. You don't cling to them. They're they're not your ultimate hope. You're not trying to squeeze life out of them, and so you let them go. You're generous with God's gifts. As God gives you a bonus, you think, how can I bless people with this? How can I be generous with what God has given me? How can I be generous with my resources? How can I be generous with my time? How can I be generous with the gifts that God has given me for the good of others? What sets you free to to live that kind of generous life is when you know you have God as the object of your affection, that he has made you his own, and that in him you have all that your soul longs for. Then you are set free to hold on to things in this world loosely. It's one of the effects of of, of living a life of worship. When you have God as the supreme object of your affection, you say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. They devoted themselves to worship corporately. They devoted themselves to worship privately, individually, when they were not together, in all of life. And here's the the last sphere. They devoted themselves to public worship. Now, I'm making a distinction here between corporate and public. The the emphasis here is they devoted themselves to worship when they were around unbelievers. Look uh, at uh, the end of verse 46 and into verse 47. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the picture, as we zoom out here, the picture is, as these early Christians devoted themselves to God's word, as they devoted themselves to each other, and as they devoted themselves to worship corporately together and in all of life, the Lord added to their number those who were coming to faith in Christ. Now, how does that happen? The, 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 the text here doesn't tell us the mechanics of how that happens, but we can learn uh, from what's happening in the rest of the book of Acts. Right? Just before our passage, we see thousands coming to faith as Peter proclaims the gospel. Then if we jump ahead, we find Peter again proclaiming the gospel in Acts, th- in Acts 3. And then uh, even as they were arrested, still many more believe. And now listen to this. After Peter and the apostles are arrested and threatened and warned by the religious leaders basically to you know, you know, keep their mouths shut, to be quiet, this is what they said. And this is what I, this is the, what I want you to see here. Acts 4, 19 and 20, uh, they've been arrested, they are, they've been warned, they've been threatened, be quiet, don't talk anymore, and here's what they say to the religious leaders. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the relationship between worship and lives that are lived publicly and intentionally in front of unbelievers. When you have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you cannot help but speak of it. That's how we're wired. We are wired to declare the things that we delight in. We are wired to proclaim the things that we praise. That's how we're made. The bold declaration of the gospel is not so much a strategy among early Christians as much as it was the overflow of their worship. Do you see that? It was a spilling out of their praise and worship of God. See, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In in seeing the truth of who God is and all that he had done through the Lord Jesus Christ, they had witnessed the, the death of the Lord and his resurrection. They had sat with Jesus and heard him unfold all the scriptures to them. As they saw Jesus Christ, as they heard the gospel, as they were reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and were, were shown the glory of God, they could not help but speak of what they had seen and what they had heard. And that's how worship works. A proclamation is the consummation of praise. 
It's the necessary result, consequence of praise. It's, it's why, I know I've given you this example before, it's why when you watch, think about the, the last movie that you watched that you were like, that was a good movie. There was like a moment where you reveled in your enjoyment of it, and then in the very next moment you thought this, who can, who, 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 who can I send this movie to? Who can I recommend this movie? Who would also enjoy seeing this movie? In the very next moment, you're like, I need to share this. I need to talk about it. Think about the last album that you heard that you were like, whoa, this is crazy good. You sat and you listened to it and you enjoyed it. And in the very next moment, you, you, you texted someone, you, you got on, you were like, yo, you got to check this guy out. He's amazing. It is the consummation of praise. Right? When you see something beautiful, you are naturally, by God's design, wired to then speak that thing. This is the relationship between worship and evangelism and worship and missions. When you have seen the glory of God, your, your heart burns with a desire for others to see and know Him. It has to. And if it doesn't, brothers and sisters, it's because you haven't seen Him. Right? When you see the goodness and the glory, and, and the grace of God in Jesus Christ, what it produces in us is, i got to tell someone about this. This is unbelievable. The world needs to know. You know, uh, John Piper, famous, uh, one of the most famous quotes in the 20th century on missions. You know, he says, he, he, he talks specifically about this relationship between worship and missions. This is what he says. Missions exists because worship doesn't. This is our motivation, right? The the church has been given a task, and that task is to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, right? To proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. But this is not the end goal of the church. The end goal of, do you remember what I said the end goal of the church, the end goal of God's people is? It's the glory of God. It's the worship of God. We go to faraway places. We go locally. We go to our neighborhoods, and we go to our family members, not primarily, listen, this is going to sound, don't throw anything at me. It's going to sound backwards for a minute. We don't go primarily because we want people to get saved. We do. We love them. We want them to come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We go primarily first because we long for God to be honored. We long for his name to be glorified. We long for his message to be preached. Look, if, if, let me ask you this question. If, if, the, if, if God would be gracious and raise up someone out of this body and, and God called them to go to, to some faraway place where the gospel had never been preached and they went and they preached the gospel faithfully for 40 years and not a single person came to Christ and then they died, would that have been a waste? No. Why not? Because whenever God's message is proclaimed, whenever the gospel is preached, God is honored. And he is worthy, regardless of people's response, regardless of how people respond, for his gospel to be preached. And we do pray. Now, the other side of this coin, we do pray. We long for people to hear that message and repent and put their faith in Christ. But our deepest longing is that they would do that for the sake of God's name, because he's glorified, because he's honored. Because he's worshipped as a result of it. The missions is not the end goal of the church. Evangelism is not the end goal of the church. Right? Missions will come to an end. Evangelism will come to an end. Worship will go on forever. Worship is the end goal. What does it look like and sound like to live a life of worship? It means that you are the same Christian when you are gathered here, when you're in your home, and when you're with unbelieving friends. I think, I think sometimes we complicate evangelism. We complicate what it is to live our lives of faith publicly. Okay, I think a lot of times what it looks like is just living our lives as what we are as Christians. Do, do you find yourselves, when you're around unbelieving family members, unbelieving friends, filtering yourself? I don't know if I'm going to say it that way. They're not going to understand. That might be a little offensive. Eh, I'm going to get a sideways look. Do you find yourself filtering yourself? 
Okay, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not advocating that you just, some, sometimes filters are good. We need filters because stuff comes out of our mouth that shouldn't. But what I'm saying is, do you, do you filter your identity as a Christian? Don't. Right? Live as God has made you. Live as his children. Live as followers of Christ. Don't filter yourselves. See every place you are as a sphere, as an arena for worship, that God would be proclaimed, that his name would be honored. Use your life to to, to call attention to the glory of God. We're going to sing these words in a moment. And my prayer is that this would be uh, that this would be a, a chorus that, that marks this church. And not to us, but to your name alone be all the glory. The glory forever. For your faithfulness and steadfast love, receive the glory. The glory belongs to you. So brothers and sisters, in, in this year, may we as a church devote ourselves to God's word. May we devote ourselves to each other. Listen. Dial in. I'm almost done. As we move forward into this new year, let's devote ourselves to God's word. It's what we're built on. We're built on the truth of God's word. In the grace that he supplies by the power of the Spirit, let's devote ourselves to one another. He has saved us into a people, reconciled us to God, and reconciled us to one another. Let's devote ourselves to one another, and let's devote our lives together to worship when we're here gathered, and when we scatter. Let's devote all of our lives when we're here singing and praying and hearing Scripture read and sitting under the preaching of the Word. Let's devote ourselves to worship, and let's devote our whole lives to worship. And may that worship overflow into bold declaration of all that God has done in Christ to the ends of the earth. And above all, may He receive all the blessing and all the honor and all the glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time, and we do pray, uh, though we know our need, we know our, our failings, we know our inability, and yet we pray that you would make us a people, a church, a body that exists primarily to glorify you, to give you glory, to honor you. Lord, may that be true of us as a body and true of us as individuals. Strengthen us for this through the gospel of your Son, knowing that we have been unchangeably and unshakably made your children through the blood of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.